I just want to add my welcome to all of you here in the sanctuary, to all of you in the fellowship hall, and to anyone joining us online. There's a lot of things you could be doing at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, and we think this is a great place to be, not because we're great, but God is great. And so it's our prayer that we'll meet with him and his uh, word uh, this morning uh, as we uh, start this new sermon series, The Gospel in the Life of Solomon. Our hope is that through this series, we're going to be doing this for about five weeks. It's going to take us up through Easter. And our hope is that we will see what Solomon's life has to say about the struggles that we face and the grace that we need. So let me invite you to turn in your church Bibles to page 279. If you're in the sanctuary, it's in the pew in front of you. If you're in the fellowship hall, uh, they're available on the back table. So keep it open because my task today is to cover 1 Kings 1 and 2. Uh, We're not going to read all of that because I wouldn't have any time to preach if we read all of that this morning. So let me do encourage you that throughout this sermon series, you may want to make 1 Kings 1 through 11 a part of your your Bible reading so that you can uh, become familiar with some of the characters and the details and perhaps some of the stories that that we don't cover uh, in depth. What's the Solomon story about? Well, the title of the book should be a clue to us, kings. It's about, guess what, kings. Uh, And if you were here uh, about a year ago, we did a sermon series on on the life of, uh, the gospel and the life of King David. And, And the theme sort of continues. It's about the search for a true king. Because as we will see, even a king like Solomon, who had amazing wealth and wisdom, he cannot rule and bless because he has a divided heart. So open up to page 279, and I'll guide you through the verses that we're going to read together. We'll begin in chapter 1 with verse 1. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king And be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. And found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. Now Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself saying I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest... And Benaiah, the son of Joida, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside in Ragul. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. 
Now flip down to verse 32 or scroll down to verse 32 in chapter 1. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Joiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be the ruler over Israel and over Judah. Now, chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 4 and then finish with 10 through 12. So chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And then finally, verses 10 through 12. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So I've got a lot to cover, so let's pray. Father, thanks for this text. And there's a lot of names and there's a lot of plots, but this is your word. And so, Father, uh, help our hearts to believe, to see what you want us to see. Help me, help us, Holy Spirit. Uh, to see who you are, and to understand what your word means for our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, beginnings and endings in books tell us a lot. The beginnings will, will foreshadow what is coming, and, and endings sometimes summarize what the books are about. You, you may even recognize a, a few of these beginnings of books. Maybe you recognize this line, it, it was the best of times it was the worst of times. What is it? A tale of two cities, right? It's foreshadowing that it will be a story of contradiction. Maybe some of you know this one. In our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. A river runs through it. Not as many of you have read that one. Not surprising. Uh, and then First Kings begins with this line. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And all they, although they covered him in clothes, he could not get warm. Kind of a strange start to a book. I, I read this week that Kings is different than a lot of books in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, because those books uh, end with the death of a great leader, whereas First Kings begins with the death of a great leader. If you, if you go back and read Joshua or Genesis, Genesis ends with the death of Moses. Deuteronomy ends with the death 
of, uh, wait a minute, let's, let's go back. Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. There's a lot of names in this chapter, okay? So bear with me. Joshua ends with the death of Joshua, but 1 Kings begins with the death of David. And as I thought about that this week, I asked myself, what is the point of starting with the death of David? And and I think the point is this. It's to emphasize that the kingdom of God was in a perilous position. You know, it's it's just like in a game of chess. When, When the king dies, the game is over. And so when, when David is on the verge of death, the question is, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the kingdom and, and what's going to happen to, to all the people living in the kingdom? And so faced with uncertainty, we, we read about all of these different names, all of these different characters, all of these pawns, rooks, knights, bishops, and queens, and their activity and what they're doing faced with uncertainty. And I think that's the question for us today. What do we do when we're faced with uncertainty, when we're staring down difficult circumstances or a perilous position? What do we typically do? Well, we're going to get there, but first, I want to take you to the story of chapter 1 and chapter 2, so I'm going to try to summarize it and walk you through it, and then we'll finish with two takeaways answering that question of how we can respond in the face of difficult circumstances. So, chapter 1, get in your time machine with me. We're going back about 3,000 years to 970 B.C. And as you hop out of your time machine, you bump into David. Now, if you've been in church, or maybe even if you've not been in church, you've probably heard of King David. He was kind of a big deal. He was very famous. You may remember that he was the lion slayer, that he was the giant killer, that he was the conqueror of kingdoms. But today, he's simply a dying man. Now, don't take offense at this. He's advanced in years, is how the Bible describes him, about 70 years old. I'm not saying if you're 70, you're advanced in years. That's just the way the Bible described David. And he could not get warm. In the simplest of terms, David was old and cold. He's a shell of his former self, but he's still king, and he can't get warm. So they put on some extra pajamas. They wrap him in a goat hair snuggie, but he's still anything but powerful at this stage of his life. The kingdom looks like it's in a perilous position. David has failed to establish his successor, and his life appears to end in failure. And then it gets worse in chapter 1. While, while David is basically waiting to die, his kids have already moved on, and one of them makes a claim to the throne. That's the guy, Adonijah, that we heard about. And we see him described in verse 6. He's handsome, and he's the eldest. And if we learn anything in God's Word, we, we never learn from our mistakes, or we very rarely learn from our mistakes. Remember Absalom and Saul. 
We always tried to choose a king based on who was the best looking. And God had to keep reminding us that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. But still, the people are impressed because Adonijah is handsome and the eldest. And so with plenty of support, he takes calculated steps to announce his candidacy for the kingship. He rounds up all his powerful friends, Joab, Abiathar, and all his brothers, and he gets all the royal officials uh, to come to his self-appointed coronation in verses 5 through 9, and and it's an impressive display of, of chariots and wealth and friends and religion, the whole kit and caboodle. We don't know anything about that in this town, do we? But it tells us that not everyone was there. In in verse 10, there were some people not on his guest list. It says, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Beniah or the mighty men or Solomon his brother. That's a clue that something might not be right about his claim to the kingship. We didn't read it, but if you look down in verse 11, the prophet Nathan appears on the scene. I love Nathan. He wastes no time taking steps to secure the throne for Solomon because he knows that God has promised and he has appointed Solomon to be the successor to David. And so he goes and talks to David's wife, Bathsheba, who's the queen, and says, hey, we need to take a few steps. We need to make sure that David knows what's going on. So here's the deal. You go in to talk to David first, then I'll come in after you, and we'll see if we can't get him to take some steps against this. And so in verses 18 through 21, Bathsheba goes in to talk to David and tells him what's happening. And then Nathan comes in and uh, backs up her story. And then he follows up with the question to King David in verse 27. He asked the king, has this thing, what, what Adonijah has done, has it been brought about by my lord the king? And have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? And David begins to respond, and in verse 28, we we see him come alive, and he springs into action. And in verse 29, he forcefully reiterates that Solomon indeed will succeed him as king. And Bathsheba responds in verse 31, May my lord, King David, live forever. Her point being that may the kingdom of David endure forever. So David wasted no time giving very precise and specific orders. First, he gives the orders to a particular group of people. Okay, There's three groups of people that are represented here that he gives them orders. He gives orders to a prophet, a priest, and the representatives of the king. You can think about them sort of like the three branches of the government. All three of these in the Old Testament were appointed by God. So David, by choosing a prophet, a priest, and a representative of the king, is making the point that Solomon is God's choice to succeed David as king. 
And not only does he have a particular group of people to carry out his actions, he has a very specific group of things that they are supposed to do. Verse 33, Solomon is supposed to ride David's mule. Sort of like Air Force One or the Queen's carriage. It's a sign of the kingship or the presidency. Verse 34, Solomon must be anointed by a prophet. It's significant, right? Because God chooses the king. Remember Saul being anointed and David being anointed. And so this is a very specific act that David tells them to carry out. And then finally, the third kingly action is in verse 35. Solomon must be announced and enthroned. So the prophet, the priest, and the king, they did all these things. He rode on David's mule. He was anointed, and he was enthroned in verse 39. And all the people responded with, Long live King Solomon. And then all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy. I love this description. So that the earth was split by their noise. The people had seen the signs and they were celebrating the king that God had appointed. Meanwhile, we go back to the other scene at the end of chapter 1. There's Adonijah and his crew. And because they're splitting the earth, they hear the ruckus and wonder what is going on. And so Adonijah checks his phone. He sees the tweet from Jonathan that David has named Solomon king, and then he knows trouble is coming. And so the chapter ends with his posse scattering and Adonijah begging for mercy, which Solomon grants on the condition of his worthiness and submission to Solomon as king in verses 49 through 53. All right, chapter one. What do you need to remember from chapter one? A new king is on the throne. His name is Solomon. Now, I won't take as much time. Let me walk you through chapter two. Chapter two is all about how this new king, um, how his throne is established. So in verses 1 through 9, David gives his final instructions to Solomon. And if you read the instructions, we read verses 1 through 4, and you're tracking along. Be faithful to the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart and mind. You're like, yeah, that's good stuff. So verses 1 through 4 are are, are really good instructions to Solomon. But if you read verses 5 through 9... David's basically instructing Solomon to take out all of his enemies and anyone who could overthrow uh, Solomon. And so Solomon carries out all those instructions and, and, and leads to the death of several of the group that had attempted a coup. Now, commentators are divided on verses 5 through 9. Uh, some of them think that David is being shrewd and just. Uh, But others think that it's just simply a ruthless power uh, political move. But here's here's a good principle that you need to keep in mind when you're reading stories in the Old Testament, okay? The stories that you read in the Bible uh, sometimes are simply descriptive and not prescriptive. 
What do I mean by that? I mean, sometimes the story is just simply telling you what happened, and we don't get any commentary from God. It's just simply saying, this is what happened. Prescriptive is something we ought to do. So we need to be careful not to read this and to think that God is necessarily condoning all of these actions or that you should go out and kill all of your enemies. That's not exactly what this text means, okay? Just a good hermeneutical principle in mind. Some things are descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. That was for free. All right, moving on. (laughs) Now, verses 13 through 25, Adonijah hadn't had enough. And so he basically play, uh, makes a play again for the kingship, which led to Solomon putting him to death. He continued to pursue power and sex, and it led to his death sentence. And then two of the other conspirators, Abiathar and Joab, they continued or had pursued power and violence. And so Abiathar was banished, and then Joab was put to death And then Shimei was put under house arrest, but he disobeyed the king's orders, and he pursued power and money, and he too was put to death. That's a whole nother sermon. What I want you to take from that, well, Phil Riken, uh, when he preached on this at 10th Pres in Philadelphia, he, he summarized it this way. He says, what's important to notice about these men is that they all put their desire for money, sex, or power ahead of loving obedience to the kingdom of God. Each of the men that Solomon executed had one thing that he refused to give up for the kingdom of God. Now, main point of chapter 2 is what? It's in verse 12 and 46. The main point, what I want you to take from this, is that the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. What's important to remember about that is that God had made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that his Davidic line would continue. And in Chronicles, we are told that Solomon was the one to continue the kingship of David. And so in chapter 2, we are seeing God being faithful to his promise to David. That God said, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. And then he's seeing to it in chapter 2. All right. Now, what does all this mean? That's an interesting story, Pastor. What does this have to do with my life today? Well, we go back to our original question, right? Faced with uncertain circumstances or a perilous position, how, how do we typically respond and, and how can we respond? So, so two takeaways. Look down at verse 5 in chapter 1. It says, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. I will be king. That's the dominant idea of chapter 1. There's a phrase that's uh, mentioned nine times in chapter 1. Sitting on the throne and ruling. And it's really interesting, Adonijah, his name means the Lord is master. Yet it's quite obvious that he wanted to be his own master. And that's the point for us. Just like Adonijah, we exalt ourselves. And we want to be sitting on the throne 
ruling and reigning. In other words, point one, we are determined to be our own king. Power is one of our highest values, one of our greatest idols. It seeps into our souls and it can color every one of our relationships. Some of you may be familiar with David Brooks. He's a columnist for the New York Times. And back in 2008, he he wrote an article called uh, Rank, Link, Imbalances. And he talks about that in our culture, high achievers have social skills for vertical advancement with bosses and mentors. But we don't have uh, horizontal skills for connecting in relationships with spouses, friends, and families. He writes, countless presidential candidates so that they are running on behalf of their families, even though their entire lives have been spent on the campaign trail away from their families. And then he says later, their grandeur is not enough eventually, and they realize that they are lonely. Now, not many of us are running for president But all of us are running our own lives. And how many of us have the skills for advancement, you know, but not the skills for connecting in real relationships? Do you see how this maybe plays out in your life? It's really easy to see it in someone else's life and to not recognize the idol of power that can take place in our own lives. And so I've got a few diagnostic questions that can sort of indicate uh, power playing out in our lives. And if we're honest, power is the air that we breathe in this city. So it's really important to be aware of it. So here's a few diagnostic questions. How often at the end of a tough day or when you're feeling unsuccessful do you check your account balance on your banking app? Or how often do you think about adding a level to your GS pay scale to feel self-sufficient and secure? Or how about at the end of the day, how often do you look at pornography because you're too tired to initiate real conversations with your spouse because you are afraid of rejection? How many countless hours do you devote to your physical appearance in order to feel attractive and beautiful? That's about power as well. Or how much money do you spend on your kids' extracurricular activities, raising them to be valedictorians for Ivy Leagues, in order to feel better about your own success? And do you care more about whom you're with in social settings like school, or do you care more about the people you've been there for? Because one is all about your power and all about your appearance, and the other is all about serving and loving someone else. What about this? Ooh, how many of you come to church participate in a community group and serve because if you do, you think you might have a better week. That somehow, if you can follow the rules, then God owes you. And in some sense, then you have power over God because I upheld my end of the bargain and then now God's got to uphold his end of the bargain and and things are going to go better for me this week. Now, 
I'm not saying these things are a bad thing, right? But that's the very definition of an idol. When we're using things like this to have the appearance of control and power in our city and in our home, it's everywhere. And what are the temples? And what are the sacrifices that you are making on a daily basis to feel powerful and in control? You know, this is not a new idea, right? If you go back to the Garden of Eden, uh, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he tempted them to what? To become like God. To take power from the tree that God had warned us not to eat for our own good. And since the fall, since our relationship with God is broken, we have been searching for ways to control our own lives to deal with our sense of powerlessness. Think about it. Instead of feeling security, we are now filled with anxiety. Instead of finding courage, we are now full of fear. Instead of fabricating strength, we are now constantly faced with inadequacy. We don't get what we desire Yet we continue down the same path to power because if you're like me, I don't like to admit that I'm out of control, that I feel anxious, fearful, and inadequate because we all are. And friends, we have a tendency to think that we can be in charge of our kingdom. But at some point, most of us in our lives are going to realize that we can't control the things that matter most. We are all finite and limited. And the Bible says that the only true security is found in a restored relationship with God. Okay? So point one, we are all determined to be our own king. Point two, but God has provided a better king. Look down at verse 45. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. If the theme of chapter 1 was succession, the theme of chapter 2 is security. Four times we are told that the throne was firmly established. When the Lord makes a promise, he is intent to keep it. And even though Solomon will fail to keep the charge that David had given to him, God will not fail to keep his promise that someone from the Davidic line will be ruling and reigning forever and ever. How did God keep this promise? Well, we're told in the New Testament. We're told in Luke eleven thirty one by Jesus himself. He says in Luke eleven thirty one something greater than Solomon is here. That something is someone, and his name is Jesus. And can't you just see the continuation here in Solomon? Don't you see the thread here? Jesus, we know, is from David's line, right? He's a descendant of Solomon. He is the one who kept all the statutes, all the commandments. His entire life, he lived a life of perfection. He was completely faithful. Think about the other things. He rode a royal 
donkey, right? He was anointed by the Spirit. Two acts of kingship. And the third one was delayed. He wasn't enthroned right away, right? He wasn't enthroned. Instead, he was sacrificed. He died on the cross. He offered a king's ransom. His life for the life of his people. And Jesus was declared dead on the cross But God said, long live the king. And so Jesus rose again from the dead, and God placed him, he enthroned him at the right hand of the Father and gave him all authority over heaven and earth, and he is ruling and reigning. And we, his people, are invited to split the earth with loud praise and our worship of our king who has come. God is determined to give us a better king. And friends, because Jesus is a better king, if you look at his kingship, then we are compelled to submit and to celebrate him as our king, even when we want to control and rule our own kingdom or lives. What does it mean to become a Christian? One way to say it is this. When you become a Christian, you are submitting to a new king, and his name is Jesus. And it's that submission that leads to our salvation. We cannot save ourselves. When you become a Christian, you have a new king. His name is Jesus. And because Jesus is a better king than Solomon... We are then enabled to be strong and to walk before him in faithfulness, even when our circumstances look perilous. It is his succession that leads to our security. We need him to be our confidence and peace. When you follow your new king, and you know there's no limits to his power and to his love and to his wisdom, then you have a new motivation to follow him and a new power to fight against sin in your life, and it's called grace. Sermon in a sentence, we are all determined to be our own king, but God has provided a better king. So what do you do when you're faced with difficult circumstances? I love what the reformer Martin Luther used to say to one of his students whenever he was anxious. He would look at this student and he would say, let Philip cease to rule the world. Friends, it's a good reminder for us today too. Let us cease to rule the world. Jesus is a better king. Let's trust him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've sung about this already, that when castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. And so, Father, remind us today that we have no other king because we need no other king, that you are all that we need. And so, Father, as we come to your table, to the table of the king, would you remind us through this sign that you are a loving God, that you're a powerful God. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.